If you uh, have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And um, also, if you're on live, you can just click on Bible up there. I think it's in the upper right. And you can bring up this Bible passage. This is Romans 8. I'm going to read verses 28 through 39. Listen to what the apostle says. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this week I'm going to preach through about verse 34 here. And then the next week I'm going to go through 35 and following because there was too much, too much, too much. I comfort myself with the fact that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, preached 144 sermons in Romans 6 to 8, I think. So we're still going at lightning speed compared to that. Um, I remember when I was, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old, going with my dad. Uh, my dad was a side hustle beef farmer. And he would go to these men and make, make business deals with them about what, how they were going to serve each other. And he would, they, well, the guy would say what he was going to do. And my dad would say what he was going to do. And then oftentimes they would shake hands, and then that was it. And, um, and I, I remember a couple of those times when we walked out, especially with this one man, Mike Bazell, he would say, he would say, Nick, there are some men in this world you can do that with. That if they tell you they're going to do something and they shake your hand, they will do it or they will no longer believe they are themselves. About five years later, um, my mother suffered from a very severe um, hormonal dysfunction that led her to be just very all over the place emotionally, very strong emotional reactions, and it felt like my house was in complete and utter chaos. And um, I was not sure about the health of my mom and whether, whether it would endure. And um, yet in those days, it was, it was funny, not until years later when I was a husband myself— did I ever dream that my dad could have just left and just quit? There's something I believed about his character, the way he was, that he was going to stay. And the thing is, I didn't really know much about other people 
being abandoned by their fathers at that point. I mean, we lived kind of rural. There wasn't a ton of divorce, and there wasn't a lot. I mean, most—that runs in circles of friends. Most of our people in our circles of friends either weren't divorced or weren't divorced yet. And so I, I didn't know that the world that was my safe place with the cows and the barns and the parents and the chickens wasn't living in a safe world. I didn't know that what I was experiencing wasn't the way the world is, right? I remember 20 years ago now, standing in a church in Oswego, New York, and promising to Alexi that I would never leave her or forsake her. And for her, to, she did the same, that, that no matter what our wretchedness, that if we would just stay in the promise of that covenant, we would never leave or forsake each other. And I remember before I married her, and after I married her, before struggling with God's sexual ethic, and after struggling with God's covenantal ethic, that his restrictions on sexuality, his restrictions on divorce, are among his most absolute restrictions. And I, I always wondered why that had to be, why that was such a big deal. And I, I don't think I really understood until much later. But to this day, as I throttle my way into midlife, I'm still inspired by those kinds of things. I'm still inspired by the idea that a promise can be rooted in character, and character rooted in the real capacity for unrelenting love. In fact, the only surefire way to make sure I'm going to cry at a movie is for somebody to act like that. For somebody in the film to do what nobody does. And to choose to sacrifice for the good of somebody else, to do something as a servant because that they will not stop loving what's good or that other person, no matter what it costs them. You see, for— a lot of years I believed that the main reason that people didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus the Christ was for empirical reasons. That's certainly how I felt when I was in college. That's the reason everybody gives. So I thought that was the real reason. I wasn't yet psychologically advanced enough to know that people say things that aren't true. Uh, that they, they say things they think they mean and they think are real, but there are deeper things that are more persuasive. And so I didn't even become a pastor mainly to um, shepherd people through the crises of faith in their life, through the problems that they experienced under the curse. I mainly became a pastor to fight for the truth on behalf of people so that they wouldn't be bullied out of it. It wasn't until the next 20 years of my life that I realized that that it's not really— the empiricism. That's the problem. Resurrection of Jesus is attested by many eyewitnesses through great, embarrassingly well-documented narratives that are in agreement but unlikely, not colluded. I mean, that's not the problem. The problem is, is that we find it emotionally unbelievable in the experiential empirical relationship we've had with the curse. That's why it's unbelievable. And so one of the things that the resurrection is supposed to demonstrate for us about God, in the world in which the claim feels unbelievable, is that God's children conquer 
because God's love is unrelenting. God's children conquer. When it says that we're more than conquerors, it says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I find that people really struggle with that. And I, I find that people claim that it's because the resurrection is unbelievable from a position of sort of scientific empiricism or dispassionate analysis. Well, if you really look at the idea of resurrection, there's only being one of them, and they don't happen all the time, and it's against the laws of nature, and then you can see that this really can't happen. It's an unbelievable statement. That's not really true. Anything that is properly historically attested to can happen once in history, and it doesn't I mean, it's not true. Further, God claims that it is the fundamental center point of all of history. Therefore, it should be somewhat different than all other events in history, and is. And it was precisely prophesied specifically about more than 700 years before it happened, so it ought to have been expected. And Jesus demonstrated the capacity for it in his public resuscitation of four or five other people. So he showed in himself he had the ability to conquer death. And then through the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit himself, he did conquer death, resurrected. And that's why it says in Romans, it demonstrated that he is the Son of God by means of power. Right? If the resurrection happened more than once, then it would not be the spirit of holiness declaring Jesus to be the Son of God with power. God's intention was that it would be singularly unique in the history of creation. The reason we, we feel like we can't believe in it is a different kind of empiricism that feels just as scientific. It feels just as dispassionate. It feels just as reasonable. Just as anger feels reasonable. But it's not. It's an intuitional empiricism. And it's based on our bias from dealing with the curse our whole life. The world is not filled with unrelenting love. The, the unrelenting love is as rare as the resurrection itself, it seems. Some of us have never experienced it. Some of us have never even seen it. And even in the places that we see it, we're not 100% sure that it's going to last. Because even people who really want to fulfill their promises are still people. And under the curse and under indwelling sin, aren't they going to fail at some point? And yet, the attitude of the Christian is supposed to be to so believe in the unrelenting love of God that in the face of our own wretchedness and the external suffering of the curse, that our attitude would be like the attitude Paul displays in verse 12 in chapter 8, where he says, I do not consider our present sufferings to be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That to so many people that feels impossible to have that kind of attitude. To look at how the curse creates chaos and damages everything that you love, including your own body, all of your relationships, and to feel indwelling sin and the poison that you cannot curate out of yourself. That somehow you, you just can't purify it. 
It's just there again and again and again. And in that wretchedness and facing that curse, it is so hard to say that because of the death and resurrection of Christ, because I've put my trust in him, because he is our Lord and Savior, because he will redeem us from death, because if this spirit lives in you that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life, that is, to your mortal bodies, that is, life in facing and dwelling sin, that life would overcome the death of that, and that life would overcome your mortality, that the curse will ultimately kill you. But the spirit that is in you that gives you life now will give you life then, that as Christ was raised from the dead, so will you be also. That you died with him in his death, and you will be raised with him in his resurrection. And that when that comes deeply home, deeply home, so that our faith is in Christ, truly in the resurrected one, and not in our—the confirmation bias of our intuitional empiricism because of our cynicism, because of the pain of the world and the wretchedness of our heart. In that moment, we will begin to say, verse 12, that I do not consider these present sufferings to be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So over the next couple weeks, I'm going to talk about two things. One is, I want to talk about the two ways we have so much trouble believing this. The first is our moral self-doubt, that I'm too weak and too wretched for this to be true. And the second is suffering's self-doubt, that living under the curse and seeing the chaos of suffering and degradation around me, how could God really be with me if I suffer? If God's desire was to demonstrate to me that his love was unrelenting, how could he be demonstrating an unrelenting love in the presence of this kind of suffering under the curse? It's impossible to believe that. It's not impossible to believe that. But you have to wait a week to find out why. Let's talk about the first one, moral self-doubt. Romans, the second half of Romans 7 and the first half of Romans 8 focuses on the fact that when we see the beauty of the truth of the gospel and, it, and we delight in it in what the Bible calls our inner self, there's another part in us that is called indwelling sin or the flesh that is in conflict with that and we often, we often lose to it in our desire to be what we're supposed to be, what we're meant to be, what God calls us to be, what God demands we be. And because of that, we are constantly reminded that there is an indwelling weakness in us and an indwelling wretchedness in us that feels like it will never end, that we will never triumph over it, that we will never finally be free of it. Even with the Spirit. Verses 31 and 34 focus on this. You can read this in the upper right-hand corner of your screen. What then shall we say in response to these things? That God, you know, that God is working for our good and he will ultimately glorify all who he conforms to the image of his Son. Right? He says, what shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. I want to point out um, three major things that we easily miss. But I, I want to make really clear that 
it's very easy to feel alone in the idea that God is going to give up on you, even if you've put your faith in Jesus. Sometimes, for some of us, it's even harder to continue to believe in Jesus after we've already done it, right? Um, you might call this something like um, the parole fallacy, right? Everybody wants to believe that a bad person can make a switch and become a good person. Everybody wants to believe in that big switch, right? Where somebody could commit a crime, be convicted of that crime, have really done it, and then feel really bad about it. See the moral weight of the thing and say, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to be a different kind of person. Give me another chance. And there's something in the human heart that wants to say, yes, give that person another chance, right? And then, so you give them another chance. So they go out on parole, and they do something, you know, to break parole. You don't even have to do something that's against the law, right? And like, there's this kind of like, oh, you did something, you're done. You're done. But it's, 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 in some ways, it's easier to have been a great sinner <laughs> and then to realize it and to come to Jesus and believe that in that moment you've been forgiven and that now you're living a new life in Christ and this is great and you can really feel forgiven even if you do some really terrible stuff. And then you can do some stuff that's not near as terrible as that stuff. But because it's on the other side of the forgiveness of Christ flowing into your life, you realize every action is against the grace of God and you are much more sensible of how much you deserve to be abandoned. Deserve to be rejected. For though all this grace has been given to you and you've been given a new chance and yet you still behave this way, you still feel this way, you still think this way, you still want these things. And it just feels like you have a sickness beyond cure. The divine cure hasn't cured you. How could the divine heart still want you? Like, how does that work? And you see, because of this, sometimes people who've been Christians for a while have a harder time believing in the enduring, tracking, unrelenting love of God all over them in the conquering over wretchedness and the curse because they just feel increasingly like God's facial expression towards them is an expression of mild disgust, even though they're his, right? So that Paul could say in Romans 7, 24, after he had recognized the beauty of the truth of God, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? There's a song called Just As I Am by Andrew Peterson, where one of the verses, he says this, all of my life I've held on to this fear. These thistles and vines that ensnare and entwine, whatever flowers would appear. It's a reference to the curse. Eating out and tangling up everything that's good that would grow in you. He says, it's the fear that I'll fall one too many times. It's the fear that his love is no better than mine. One of, one of them, the movies I like that's kind of an old movie now is the movie um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Wedding. There's this point in the movie, so there's this like wasp guy who's marrying into this like super Greek family and there's this point like where he's converting to the Greek Orthodox Church and he's in like a kitty tub and the woman's not very religious like sister or, or like cousins like rubbing oil on him and it's like all in Greek and the woman who's supposed to marry this guy turns to her brother. She's like, any minute he's going to realize I'm not worth this. Like, you can find that feeling everywhere because it's real. And what the Apostle is saying in these verses is, is that every person, every Christian, 
every human who is at all in touch with themselves or the world that they live in is going to feel this. You're going to feel it. It doesn't make you not a Christian. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit isn't in you. Or if you're not a believer yet, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't want you or that God hasn't chosen you. It just means you are experiencing human life under the curse. You are experiencing human wretchedness. It could be a really good sign. It could be a very good sign that God is working in your heart to reveal to you the truth, to carry you both into faith and the hope of the glory of God and into real human humility. So let's look at these three things quickly. The first is, is that God, God's work is the long-term transformation, right? But if the transformation was supposed to happen instantaneously, it wouldn't be a process. But that is his goal. I mean, in, in verses 28 through 30, people get really tied up in the, with the word, they see the word predestination there. And they go, oh my gosh, predestination. Well, what does that mean? And who's predestined? How does that work? And people get in these very ethereal and, and elitic discussions about how God's predestination works, but that's actually not the point of the verses at all. The point of the verses is the predestination of God for those he calls and chooses is specifically that they should be con conformed into the image of his Son. That is, the word in Greek is the word we get metamorphosis from, is transformed like like a creature changing into something almost entirely different, into the image of Jesus, his son, so that he, that is Christ, could be the firstborn among many brothers, many children of God, many brothers and sisters, many heirs of glory. That's the goal, and the predestination happens for that purpose, and therefore the calling happens for that purpose, and therefore the justifying or the forgiving happens for that purpose, and the Glorification happens for that purpose. And if that's his purpose, the conforming work, the transforming work into the image of his son, why would God not stay with the process? Why would God say, no, you fell. That's one too many times. You're done. He's not done. The only person who can quit this relationship is you. He's not done. And the way the apostle argues it is he says, Why would God give his son as a sacrifice for your sins and then decide, now that you've done this thing, he's just throwing good money after bad? If he's in for his son, he's all in, man. All the chips are in the middle of the table. It's all on this hand. He's not quitting. He's playing this out to the bitter end because he's already in for Jesus. Who is going to be in for Jesus and then quit? You don't quit. If you put $10 million on a hand, you don't fold. You see it out to the end. If you quit and he loses you, from our perspective, we don't persevere. Maybe that's true, but he's not going to quit. You are always in the love of God. You can jump off the ship, but this boat is made for this storm. The second is, how are you going to be condemned if God is the just who, the God who justifies? It wasn't some other God who declared you righteous when you put your faith in Christ. Who, it's, it's not like that happens somewhere else and then God's going to hear about what you've done wrong and be like, oh, oh my gosh, I didn't expect that. Remember, we, if you are a believer in Jesus and he has done this work of regeneration you and given you his spirit, you are among the called. If that's true, you are among those that God foreknew. And God didn't foreknow just up until the point of your conversion. God foreknew you in your entirety. 
Otherwise, Jesus could never have died for all of the sins of all of humanity if God didn't foreknow all of the sins of all of humanity, including all of your sins, every single one of them. And therefore, when he called you, he called you knowing your present circumstance of heart, your present wretchedness, your present difficulty, your present feeling that you can't be good enough, your present feeling that God's love can't be better than anybody else's. He knew that. He knew that you would doubt him even though he demonstrated everything and he justified you in Christ when you put your faith in him. And if you haven't yet, if you'll do it right now, he will justify you when you put your faith in Christ because Christ died for the ungodly. Right? And so— God was never going to be surprised by a new accusation, even if that accusation comes from your own heart. Even if you play the lawyer, the prosecuting attorney against yourself, God will be not only unsurprised, but unmoved. No one, not devils, not we ourselves, can bring an accusation that God has not justified and that God is surprised by. Right? And then it goes a step deeper than that. He says, but don't you realize that even if an accusation were to process through and God were to admit an accusation so that you deserve condemnation, the very event of the resurrection that Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead so that he might ascend, so that he might be with the Father as our advocate, meaning, and he is the condemned one, right? So the condemned one, the one that has received all just human condemnation, stands immediately in the presence of God the Father so that any decision towards our condemnation— happens in the presence of the one who has accepted and received all the condemnation for himself. Think about this. Imagine you go—this is a very simple illustration. Imagine you go to a restaurant with some friends, and one of your friends gets up and goes to the restroom, and you pay the bill, and then you're kind of all getting up to leave, and your friend comes back, and they— they're kind of puzzled, and then they go over to the server, and they try to repay the bill. And the server doesn't really realize what's happened because somebody else did the bill, and so they start ringing up the bill. He's going to pay like 150 bucks for all your friends. And how do you feel? Right? You should be like, yeah, oh, it's 150 bucks. Whatever. Who cares? It's his business. It's not my business. No, you'd be like, no, 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 no. I paid that already. I paid. I tipped. I, you're not going to let that other guy pay because you're going to feel indignant because you already paid. Now, how much more— one who gives their life. How much more indignant would such a person be if someone else demanded another life was paid in the place that they had already paid? And Jesus stands interceding saying, oh, no, 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 I, I paid—nobody else is paying for that. I didn't—I didn't—it wasn't particularly pleasant paying for that. I'm, I'm not going to allow that to happen. So in three steps deep, God is demonstrating and applying and stating and promising, right, that in Christ, our moral failings, our wretchedness, our weakness, the indwelling sin that continues to succeed in times where we wish it wouldn't, there may be things we're doing to contribute to that. We, there, there may be in faith ways to be much freer. Go back and restudy verses 1 to 25 or so in chapter 8 about how the Spirit can give us life and make us increasingly free and how we can put the flesh and indwelling sin to death and live in increasing freedom in the hope of the glory of God. But wherever you exist right this moment, know that three steps deep, God isn't done. You haven't fallen one too many times. He's not through with you. 
And if you come to Jesus right now for the first time, you need to know that the one who chooses to love you and is drawing you to the first step of receiving you is not going to quit on you. Whatever you will do, he foreknew. And if he calls you now, he calls you to the end. I want to end with the verse earlier in Romans that all of this is kind of working out in the later chapters. Listen to how the Apostle says this in Romans 5, 1 to 7. <clears throat> Sorry, I need to skip a couple of those. He says, Therefore, having discussed justification, us receiving forgiveness and being counted righteous in the death of Christ, he says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Right, that's the heritage of salvation. It's all these things, right? But then listen to this. Because he knows. He knows he's going to say those, and he knows that we're going to feel under the curse and in our wretchedness, like this can't all be real. And he says, verse 6, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Look, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> I want to end with this thought. And I want to ask you to respond to it personally. God knows entirely and completely how unbelievable it is that we as wretched people under the suffering of the curse could be the object of an everlasting and unrelenting love to redeem us, to justify us, to know us, to reconcile us, to make us like his son, to make us heirs and children of God, and ultimately to glorify us in his presence. So much so that we could— feel it and know it so that we would say, I don't even think the sufferings of this world and even the poison in my own heart is, the suffering of that is worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. Right? <clears throat> he knows that. He knows that you can't believe that. But that's why verse 8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about that for a minute. Why would you demonstrate something so theatrically? I mean, at least in theory, could Jesus have suffered without anybody hearing about it and died for the sins of the world? Right? Like in one sense, Jesus' death accomplished salvation. But it also, it says here in Romans 5, it also demonstrated the love of God. Demonstrate the love of God. You see, 
whatever, what all of us have to do in the end is we have to make a very, fairly simple but very difficult decision. <clears throat> Are you going to believe the confirmation bias of your own intuitional experience in the world? That this world cannot have in it this growing seed and kingdom of unrelenting love because of what it looks like and how you feel and what you've experienced? Or can you look at a singular demonstration of something in Christ, in his character, in his action, what he did, and be so moved by the promise and character of that person that you can receive something that flies in the face of how the world is. Right? Everybody does that when they think they're a good person and they think, they think the world is full of people doing bad stuff. We all think that there is some smaller minority subset of people who have the passion and the romance to believe in what's good and to do it, even in the face of sacrifice, even though many people wouldn't do it. That's why sacrifice is so moving to us, right? But <clears throat> do you believe there can be one against the infinite? Do you believe that there can be one singularly unrelenting love demonstrated in a singularly unrelenting way, in a singularly perfect and singularly beautiful way that centers all of history in the death and resurrection of the perfect God-man? And if you do, you can tap into the truth as solid as a foundation of stone, that at the bottom of all things is not the curse, is not meaninglessness, is not abandonment, but at the bottom is the offer of eternal belonging as a son or daughter to the fountain of unrelenting love, which is God himself, demonstrated perfectly and fully and aggressively in Christ himself. Let this be the day you walk into that. Let this moment be that moment. Let right now be, because remember it says twice in Romans 5, through faith we have been justified. It's through faith we enter into this grace in which we now stand. It's through faith we do these things. You have to believe. You have to have faith. You have to trust. You have to trust that there is a being that in his character— has the capacity and the strength for unrelenting love. You have to believe that. Because he demonstrated it to you so thoughtfully, so painfully, so supernaturally, and so beautifully. And so I, pr I pray that you will right now give yourself to Christ. If you've never put, given yourself to Christ, do it now. Leave the old behind. Repent. Turn from the sins of the past and give yourself to Christ with an unrelenting openness. And if you are a believer, believe the whole of the gospel for you as unrelenting love. I'm going to pray. I'm going to encourage you to pray after me. And then we're going to take some time to give our hearts to God in worship and in love. And I want to encourage you to use those songs to give your heart to the Christ who loves you this way. God, will you please work in us in such a way by your Spirit that you would bring to us a sense that you are calling us. Whether we've submitted ourselves to you before or whether we are believers, but we've darkened in our understanding in some way. 
because of the cynicism of the world or the darkness in our heart, we pray that right now that you would, through this word and at this moment of celebration, that you would speak a word into us that you are calling us, that you are loving us, that you have demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were sinners, you died for us. And that through faith, by accepting you at this moment and professing that we need you, we can stand in grace and we can hope in glory and that we will even be able to glory in our suffering, knowing that it produces the character of unrelenting love and increased hope in eternal glory. Help us, especially those of us who feel so abandoned in our lives, to see the security of your demonstration of love towards us. God, we repent of our sins. We recognize that there's many things we've done that are darkened, that are wretched. We lay them down to you. We pray that they would be placed on Christ and his sacrifice for our sins. We pray that you would give us the righteousness of Christ. Make us either for the first time a new creation in Christ, or that you would fill us with the mind of the Spirit and a new awakening to put to death the mind of the flesh. Fill us with your Spirit, Convince us of our adoption as sons and daughters and lead us into a life that is a life of those who are more than conquerors because of the one who loved us. In Jesus' name, I pray.